Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One discovers the light in darkness. That is what darkness is for. But everything in our lives depends on how we bear the light. It is necessary, while in darkness, to know that there is a light somewhere. To know that in oneself, waiting to be found, there is a light. What the light reveals is danger, and what it demands is faith. James Baldwin's words ring loudly in my ears as the year draws to a close. Our shorter days are quieted by an encroaching darkness and those of us who are able to will be spending a great deal of time reflecting on the year gone and thinking about the year ahead. What light do we see in ourselves and each other amid the literal and metaphorical darkness of our time? And what do we need in order to answer Baldwin's call to be light bearers? To encounter our light, we often need courage, which my guest today defines as acts that bring something necessary to the surface. Prince Shakur is a queer Jamaican-American author, journalist, and video maker, whose work is steeped in his commitment to black liberation, prison abolition, and queer resilience. His memoir, When They Tell You To Be Good, was released in October and won the Hurston Wright Crossover Award, which honors probing, provocative, and original new voices in literary nonfiction. Connected by our love for James Baldwin, Prince and I explore how our anger can often feel like a reaffirmation of our blackness, defining and cultivating the courage we need to live according to our beliefs, and how his desire to create spaces for transformation for others acts as a transformative force upon himself. Prince also shares his thoughts on learning how to hold the complexity of our feelings towards our families when they don't and maybe can't understand us for who we really are, and what writing his memoir taught him about telling the truth. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Prince Shakur. I'm moved by the synchronicity in our lives and our work. I mean, we're both different people. We've had different lived experiences. We both share this ancestral and spiritual connection to James Baldwin. Um, and I want to put something to you that I wrote, if that's okay, uh, a few months ago after an encounter with a man um, who helped me see myself more clearly. And I didn't realize that he was helping me see myself clearly in the moment. It was only as I was trying to metabolize the experience afterwards that I was like, oh shit, this is about me. Um, so I'll just share with you the first sentence. Uh, and this is from a little short essay I wrote called Drawing Blood. In his essay, The Artist's Struggle for Integrity, James Baldwin affirms what I have learned the hard way, which is to say the only way. The only stories worth telling are honest ones, and there is far too much at stake for stories laced with dishonesty to be forgiven. And so in preparing for this conversation, I've been thinking about the truth of things, 
right? And the socio-political climate that we're inhabiting within an art and literature space where creative nonfiction or magical realism or the autobiographical, the memoir can be this space for a truth telling that is infused with kind of like the, the aroma of fabricated memory, you know? Um, I'm interested to know or learn more about how the process of writing when they tell you to be good has helped you know how to tell the truth. Mm. On one level, I started writing this book because I never knew my biological father. He was murdered when I was very young. And that's just always been a fact of my life. Um, and there's that like inherent truth. But I think being young and being a curious person and just thinking a lot about gender and masculinity and not living up to what other boys or people in my family thought I should be as like a boy or a guy or someone who's been socialized to be a man. Um, and so in a lot of ways, my father was kind of this added mystery to this kind of challenge that I wasn't able to meet or succeed in in my life, which is like heteronormative masculinity. Um, and so this book was kind of my attempt at, I guess, trying to meet him halfway, like he's gone. Um, I've spent much of my life like searching for answers about him. And in writing this book, I realized the truths that I was looking for from other people, only I could really navigate or give them language or be as honest about them as I have always desired. Um, and so entering that process, which is like a process of grief, it's a process of looking at myself, it's a process of looking at how I view death. Like a lot of that involved me just kind of knowing like, I can't lie in this book, I don't wanna lie. And so it, there were definitely parts of it where I was trying to figure out how to write about my father or my uncle Cedric or other things in my family. And I learned like, instead of trying to embody anyone else's experience or voice, I can only really use my own perspective to highlight the things that I can highlight the most. Um, and then on just like a very material and real level, like while I was writing this book, I was entering my first relationship, falling in love for the first time. And I was using a lot of literature, a lot of writing to kind of give myself the courage to meet this person halfway and to open myself up. And I, and I do think falling in love and writing a book can feel like very similar things. You, you have to like navigate the uncertainty. You have to ask the right questions. You have to figure out when to say the right things or when silence as a utility. And so I think on another level, like writing this book helped me enter this new version of truth in my life. And then, um, just like researching about my father and my family halfway through writing this, I learned about an uncle that I never knew that my, or I learned about a brother that I never knew that my father had. Um, I learned about all sorts of things that he'd done in his life that have affected my mother's family. And it really kind of recontextualized this question about where I came from in a much more violent way. And I feel like when you are the product of something, but you also live a life that is kind of deviated from all of the like things that you've been taught in terms of where you're from. So like coming from a Jamaican family, from a black family, like queerness is there, but it's also hidden, it's stigmatized. And so for me as the product of that, I could, I could have easily been like, well, that wasn't me. So I don't have to have a relationship with it. But I think as a man, as someone who doesn't want to be complicit in the patriarchy, the more honest thing for me to do is to attempt to like look at how I can un unpack these things and how I specifically can look at them and define them in terms of like masculinity and femininity and where on the spectrum of masculinity I feel like these actions of the men in my family kind of lie and where I am on that spectrum as well. Um, and I think all of those things are deep and intense, like they're ongoing things that I'm working through, but I also feel honored that this seed was planted in my head and I found the courage to kind of cultivate it because I don't know, it's, it's made me a stronger person as well. Um, yeah. I appreciate that question. Mm, I, as you were talking, my mind was like running absolutely wild because 
the first, let me just ask you the first question that pops into my head. Do you feel any sense of allegiance to blackness because of the violence that you're encountering in your genealogy? You know, you said that you learned that there was this kind of much more violent element to the family, to the background. And the thing that popped into my head was like, does this, does he feel an allegiance to blackness because of this? Does that question make sense? Mm, I think, I think it's a good question. I mean, in some ways, yes. I mean, it's, 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 I don't know. It's a good question because on one level, like a lot of this book is looking at my family's history in Jamaica and what led them to come to the U S and a lot of it is also about me navigating my black experiences and being racialized as black and growing up as black and then coming into my blackness and that being a vehicle eventually into me learning more about like Jamaica and the Caribbean. And so I don't know. Yeah. It's, it is. I mean, I think it's a really good question because where I'm receiving it is that there is this chance to kind of romanticize this homeland, which is Jamaica for me as the child of immigrants, I can romanticize the culture and what it represents. And I don't know that that's just like a very real thing. Um, but I also understand within cultures outside of like U.S. Black culture, uh, there's a lot of anti-Blackness. Like, I mean, I grew up with a lot of Caribbean people in my family saying a lot of anti-Black things and some of that I believed. And so I think some of my allegiance, I, I guess in a way is to um, my understanding of Blackness because I think it it complicates what Jamaica and the Caribbean and what immigration like means to me and to my family. And it also, I think, puts me at an intersection that is useful. And if I don't mind that intersection, there's a lot of knowledge and resources that I fear that I won't cultivate in my life that could be helpful to people after me. Um, and, and so that to me feels like important work. I think this question about violence feels important because I think so many of us try to run from anger, violence, rage, because of the way that blackness is enraged by whiteness, right? That we're always a threat, we're always dangerous. And so it can be hard for us to confront these feelings of violence and rage. And to admit an allegiance to blackness via violence, I think is a brave thing to say, that I know that sometimes I have felt blacker, the angrier I am, right? That it feels like a true expression of of who I really am. Um, you wrote, um, toward, this is towards the end of the book, even if it was one act of brutality, I wanted to be an army of destruction too. And when I tell you, I was like on fire. <laughs> I was like, right, you know, you're throwing these fists. I don't want to be like, spoil it for anyone, but this rage that you felt, this righteous rage, we should say as well, at this point in the book. And those fists belonged in his face, right? It was righteous, it was deserved. Um, and I wanna share something I wrote as well. So my friend sent to me this poem by Rudy Francisco called Mercy. And he wrote it, um, the, the, the epigraph says after Giovanni. And he's basically talking about a woman, an unnamed woman in the poem is saying that she asked him to kill a spider. And instead of killing the spider, he kind of, like found the most peaceful weapons he could and caught the spider and placed it outside. And he hopes mm -hmm. that someone shows him that type of mercy when he's somewhere minding his business. And I don't know what I was going through, but this is what literally immediately came out 30 seconds later. I want to kill something too. I want to see something made smaller than me and know that I can stomp until it's guts and dreams slick the pristine soles of my boots. I want to kill this spider. Let this monster know that I believe the stories and I'm not willing to know the truth. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I resonate with that and like everything that you're kind of presenting because to me in a lot of ways, if I'm thinking of my book and my life and like what what you felt in response to that poem and that part of my book is, I think um, for me, it's it's like in this book and in my life, 
there's been so many moments where I've been terrified, where I've been afraid, where I felt abandoned, I've felt in distress. And there's the desire to have safety. It's the desire to go home, to be sitting on my couch next to my mother, to be eating good food, to be with friends. But then also in those moments of distress or, 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 or trouble or confusion, the opposite of safety is danger, is, is destruction. And, and having that as a solution, as a possibility in a world where you're constantly marginalized or silenced or stigmatized or being told that you need to be of something else in order to be considered a citizen or human, like having destruction or violence or anger as a solution to me is extremely liberating because it, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's like, it, it's kind of like, um, I think in the last lines of my book, like I, I say like the next thing I want to write, I want it to be an act of revenge. And I, and I think that's also tied to it too, because we can't always love ourselves to freedom or love other people to freedom. Uh, we sometimes have to destroy things. We have to like tear down the illusions that people have given us about ourselves or about other people or about the world around us. And, and, and that part of my book in particular, it, it is about that because it's about being raised to be a certain kind of man in a world and then looking at all of the men before you and realizing these men have failed in incredible ways that have affected the women that have been teaching me how to be a man. Um, and, and, and what does it mean for me to recognize the error in, in the women in my family, in the men in my family, and even the men that I care about? Like, what does this say about me? Um, and so I think anger is important, but also knowing where it's directed is important as well. Because a part of that passage is like, I wanted to be an army of destruction. A part of that is wanting to destroy some version of myself that allowed these trespasses to happen, to, that allowed this kind of suffering to happen, even if it was my own suffering. And, and where do you place the anger or the blame when a part of it is that you're angry at yourself? Hello. Okay. Now, see, thank you. This is why we have to talk about anger. I'm so, I'm like lit, lighting up because <laughs> there's this amazing essay by Devin Carbato. I'm like flying off the notes. Who cares about the notes, right? Let's just buy <laughs> yeah. This amazing essay, essay by Devin Carbato, and he's examining heterosexual privilege for black men, right? And he's trying to help us see that homophobic violence from presumably heterosexual black men comes from a comes from a place of survival right that this anger is not necessarily at the queer or punk sissy faggot right it's that this is the only bit of privilege they have it's the only bit of power they can wield and so this violence that is expressed is a shared violence right it's a shared rage it's a shared anger and i think that we're robbed of that like connective tissue between our rage when we're not able to talk about it. When we're not able to say, it's, no, it's not just you, right? It's, I'm mad at myself that, and I feel like I have to bite you because <laughs> I have to be the type of person who bites so that I don't get hit, right? I have to be the type of person, I call myself one of the blacks that bites. I've got to be one of the blacks that bites because I'm not interested in getting bit by you, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and I I like what you said earlier too about when you feel angrier, you feel more connected to your blackness because <laughs> it's just that's just something I really feel because especially during 2020 and the protests and I, I specifically it was there's been a few times in my life, but that was one of them where I would keep saying, like, I think my ancestors are like right behind me or something. Because yeah, I felt kicking me in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. Like I felt a lot more <laughs> anger. I felt a lot more just like i don't know and and so something in both of those really kind of sp speaks to me like I, I don't know yeah and i i really yeah i i don't know it it's yeah anger and blackness <laughs> you could have all yeah you could have a whole podcast really <laughs> about it, yeah um so we'll leave that with listeners to think about how they're how their blackness informs their anger, how their anger informs their blackness, and how we confront the truth of the anger in a way that, because I think that's what James did so well. 
I don't, I haven't read every single piece of his writing, but what I've never encountered in his writing is him admonishing himself for the feeling. He might have admonished himself for how he expressed it, but I think he always understood that the anger that he felt as a Black man in America, as a Black man in Paris, as a Black man in France, as a Black man in the world was righteous, it was dignified, it was necessary. And to your point about learning how to utilize that anger, I think that's what he did so well and what he models so brilliantly for us. Um, something you wrote, not in the book, but in an essay called Finding Another Country. There's a sen two sentences that really stood out to me, and I'm hoping that we can kind of unpack them a little bit. Um, you wrote this four years ago in 2018, and a, a tremendous amount of life happens in four years. You write, I decided that if I lived with enough courage, I could rid myself of the trap of constantly living out someone else's truth. The only truth that I could muster up for myself was that I wanted to be loved and longed to transform the spaces for the people around me. So I have two questions. Um, I don't know that I could explain for others what courage is for me. And so I hope this isn't a trap for you, like a trick question, but I wanna know if you can help me understand what courage means for you, or maybe a better question is, what do you consider courageous either in yourself or in other people? Mm. Courage to me is um, mm. I mean, I, I think it's a willingness to arise something to the surface that other people may be afraid to confront or see or understand. Um, and then I think a follow-up to that is courage is a willingness to accept other people's discomfort through whatever course of action that you may take. And so one, it's, it's the act of bringing something to the surface that might be hidden or given an illusion or whatever it may be. And then just accepting the, the, the kind of the, what, what we're taught as human beings, which is if something makes other people uncomfortable, it's wrong. And I, and I think courage for me has served as a utility. It's one of the utilities of courage has been to teach me like being queer isn't wrong. Being gay isn't wrong. Being black isn't wrong. Being my version of blackness isn't wrong, even if it makes other people uncomfortable. And I think I've had to learn this like, version of courage throughout different points in my life and I've had to like renegotiate it and I feel like in my writing and in this book uh <laughs> I don't know I look at a lot of it as like I'm failing at what looks like to be, I'm failing at the same thing seemingly again and again but each time when I fail I learn something new or the or the lesson expands um and and so to me courage is a lot about being willing to like face, confront, give language to dis discomfort. Um, and, and, and I also think courage is about personal accountability. Like if you truly believe in something and you want to stand by it and you feel strong enough about it to act on it, even in a space where other people don't understand or view it as wrong or view it as whatever, um, it's the willingness to say, I, I did this because I believed in it. And whatever the consequences are, I'm going to face those on some level. And I think um, I understand that on a political level, like showing up to a demonstration or being a part of a black bloc and fighting fa fascists or surveying them or being in a political space where you're acting on something that is righteous and true and is about creating a better world for yourself and the people around you. And there can still be consequences, whether it's the police arresting you and getting charged or being doxxed by Nazis or fascists or getting the shit beat out of you in the street. Like to me, courage is the act of doing something despite what the consequences may be, because hmm. I think what courage gives us is when we act courageously, it infuses what follows with, with, with more meaning or it can, because you had to take that leap of faith. 
um, to get to that place. Um, and in other people, I mean, and other people, like I just, I find it courageous when other people are charismatic, when they know how to talk to people, when they just are curious about people. I find it courageous when, I don't know. I, I think that's probably, yeah, one of the most courageous things. Cause I, cause I, if I'm thinking of the people I love the most, it's usually people that know how to make other people feel seen. And it's kind of like a core tenant of how they operate in the world. And I think really wanting to hold space for other people or help them feel seen also involves like a level of accountability. It's like, I have a level of accountability to the damage that I can do to you or the spaces that we inhabit together, the damage that this space can do to you or I. And that's something that I think is like very political to me, very personal. Um, but yeah, that that's what I'd say it is to me. Yeah. And that's really helpful. And you're right. These are all things I find courageous. I was with my friend Jeffrey just yesterday. They've recently moved over from New York. And we're both Aries. We're both very outgoing and, you know, um, we'll walk into a room, you know, like we own it. But Jeffrey has a courageousness in their spirit that I sometimes don't think I have. And I really noticed it yesterday and not in an envious way or a jealous way, but I, I was admiring Jeffrey. I was admiring them. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. And just like walking up to strangers and introducing themselves. I was like, I want to go have a drink in the corner on my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to meet anybody else. And I just thought I was, I, I spoke to them earlier today. I thought you've just, because I haven't seen them in a couple of years. I said, you've really th thrown me for a loop. I just, I admire you so much. And I, I there was a great deal of courage in, in how they behaved yesterday, which is just normal behavior for them. Um, what does your courage need is the question that I'm being told to ask you. What does your courage need? What, what, what does either spiritually or materially or what needs, what allows in your life your courage to express itself for you to, for you to say, I'm, I'm ready to be courageous? Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I I was trying to think of a lofty philosophical answer, but um, <laughs> I mean, the first one that came to mind is impatience. Like, I feel like that's also like a fuel for um courage. Like, I mean, I think in any political situation where I've done some like wild shit or some ex something that was just like extra, it was usually an immense amount of impatience. Like how dare this white person do this and not have any consequences beyond like the next five minutes. How dare this politician come to my college town and try to talk about his wife and how is no one else going to do anything? So I think for me, um, easily i mean if i'm thinking it honestly it's like impatience is a huge fuel and and maybe some of that is like tied to just learning to live as an adult under capitalism and being black and queer in this world and kind of just naturally living under any political system i believe we all live with a certain level of contradiction and that contradiction can feel like compromise and and i feel like sometimes that impatience in me, which gives me courage is kind of tied to me having those moments where I'm like, what, what am, what am I doing? Like, why am I not operating in a way that's more tied to the center of what I believe in or how, what kind of world I want to live in? And so for me, a lot of the fuel for my courage is impatience. Um, and then I think on another level, it's, it's, wanting to prove to myself that this other version of myself is possible. And so like in 2016, when I was living in Seattle and I was thinking about what I wanted to do and I was learning more about James Baldwin and I was thinking, maybe I should go to France. Um, I had the desire, but more than the desire, I wanted to be the kind of person that could take that course of action and see it through. Um, and, and I think and I don't know exactly how else to describe that, but it's always been very much like a core motivator in my life. Like one example is like, I don't exercise. I don't actively put any effort into exercising or thinking about health extremely, but some part of me at some point in my life would love to move to Thailand and train in Muay Thai for like weeks on end because that version of myself is a version of myself that I want to see actualized. And, and I think honoring that process 
throughout my life has just kind of like really helped me and it's kept me kind of closer to what I believe my core beliefs are. Um, and so I'd say those two things are definitely like the biggest pieces of fuel. Busy Being Black returns in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with author and journalist Prince Shakur. His memoir, When They Tell You to Be Good, examines a tangled web of race, trauma, and memory, and shines a light on what we all must ask of ourselves, to be more than what other people envision for us. He compels readers to take a closer, deeper look at the political world of young Black queer and radical millennials today. Um, the second part is about the transformation, and this links really beautifully to this, this future self, right? That we can take the sleep, we can be courageous, because there is a version of yourself you want to see. The second part of that phrase is the only truth I, that I could muster up for myself was that I wanted to be loved and longed to, to transform the spaces of the people around me. And I think it was Paulo Freire, but I can't be sure, who said that we must understand ourselves as both the subject and the object of the transformation. And so what have you learned about self-transformation, right? This this the sentence is very much this, this drive, this this desire is very much looking outwards, right? You want to transform other people and the spaces around them. What have you learned about your own subjectivity as part of that transformation, as part of that transformative force? I mean, I, I think to the the question about courage, I to me, one of the ways that I view self-transformation is a willingness to surprise myself. Um because on a certain level, I do love myself. I also do see my flaws. I see the ways that I police myself and hold myself back. And self-transformation for me are those moments where I go beyond whatever my perception of self is as an outgoing person or a sometimes introverted person or someone who, like whatever the sense of self that I may have, to me, like, surprising myself is is kind of like the best and most beautiful and most necessary entryway into self-transformation. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think self-transformation for me is like, I don't know. It, it's a difficult thing for me to really grasp onto because I think the, one of the reasons I love creative nonfiction and memoir and one of the reasons I'm so glad that I had the chance and the space to like write this book about my life is that when I was looking at these younger versions of myself, I at some point was trying to like write, like what was it like when I was five or 10 or 15? And although there are differences between who I am now and who I was then, I also believe that some part of me has always been here. And, and that part is seemingly what's helped me survive. And 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 I and 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 because to me self transformation is kind of a bit of a confusing term because I think there are parts of my younger self that I'm trying to get back to by unlearning things that I've transformed myself towards because of homophobia or racism or capitalism, but there are also parts of myself that have become anew through those processes of suffering or enlightenment, and 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 so to me it's just like. Maybe I, I'm just thinking of it from five different angles, but. Well, I, can I just say, I like the five different angles, right? I like the complicatedness of it because we're talking about the self and we're talking about the self in movement, right? Philosophical movement, material movement, like physical movement, psychic movement, like, and in relation to other things and people and experiences and encounters and worlds and possibilities, right? It, 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 it could never be neat. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I also think it's like, I can transform myself in my personal life or I can 
believe or lie to myself and tell myself that I am. And just, just as much with writing, I can lie on the page. I can also transform myself on the page and whatever I apply to that project or book or piece of writing that I'm doing. Like if I personally don't understand and commit to whatever that transformation is, it might just exist in this one particular place or this object or this piece of art that I've made. And so I don't know. I, and I guess on another level, like if I'm taking the question even further, I, I would say like for me, like writing is an act of self-transformation because not only am I giving language to things that are seemingly like amorphous in my mind, or I can't find a way to like verbalize to people that I love or who are close to me. Um, but the act of writing down these truths, like some part of me has to either commit to them over time and really find the value in the act of what I've written down, or I have to be committed enough to what I've written down to eventually say that was wrong, or I think mm -hmm. differently. And, and so maybe a part of self-transformation in a sense is about the, the, the level of attention you give to the different parts of yourself and how we can both change over time and we can also simultaneously stay the same. Um, and maybe another way of looking at that is like, there are some ways that we become softer on certain things in our lives. And there are other parts of our lives where our feelings or our sense of, of self around that hardens. And, and to me, it's like, those are numerous forces at play at once, kind of to your point about the different layers and levels of self-transformation that we can go to. But I think for me, writing in a way is like giving myself one level of accountability or potential accountability for how I want to change or who I want to be. Because if it's true enough for me to write down right now, like I, and, and that changes, I have to be honest, or I, I, I have the pos I have the chance to be honest about that. And that in itself is the, the possibility of another transformation. The question that's kind of niggling at me is what's missing from when they tell you to be good? What is something that you wish you would have included on reflection? Mm. Um, oh, um, mm. on one level, uh, yeah, I mean, this was something that I spoke towards a little bit in the book, but I think in terms of the themes that I'm presenting in the book about Blackness and Caribbeanness and masculinity and family and displacement, my older brother's also gay. Um, it's not super visible in the book. Maybe, in my mind, maybe I'm thinking like there might have been a throwaway line in there where I allude to it, but in writing the book, there was a very intentional choice in me to not include that very heavily or at all because I didn't want to speak to his experience um, in a way that I felt like would have been crossing like a certain boundary. But if I'm thinking in terms of like this book and everything that I'm expressing in it and kind of the different layers of masculinity and how men grow up in families next to or alongside each other and the differences and trajectory that they can have. Um, I think very easily, like if I had found the space in this book to write about that, it would have been really difficult, really intense, um, but also really fruitful because that's one part of my life that I don't really tackle too intensely in my writing because I do feel this kind of like responsibility to set a certain boundary. Um, but I, I do believe if that were in the book, it would have kind of opened up another door in, in, in kind of this house, which is my life, which is this book, which is an exploration of my life. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, also, I mean, I, I think I also wanted to like write more about my father. Um, and I think some of that is just like, the investigative elements of what I have to do to learn more about him that I'm continuing to go through now to this day. Um, and that could be a future book. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say on an emotional level for me, I wish there had been the space to write about my relationship with my brother because he's also gay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a beautiful intimacy possible, right? The possibility of a, of a closeness, particularly in lieu of the father, right? That yeah, yeah. Which I think is what you're alluding to, right? That there's this yeah. 
there's something reparative here in this in this connection. Speaking of the father, the book contains one of the most succinct reflections on the father-son dynamic that I have ever come across. Quote, I suddenly wanted to leap over the table, grab him by the collar and scream into his face or have him hold me. I thought, my God, wow, the truth of that. And this got me to thinking about, and I hope you receive this in the way it's intended. There is a normality about your life that I find so thrilling, <laughs> that I find so affirming, right? We both left the US and traveled to Europe searching for something. We both had these complicated relationships with love and intimacy and sex and the body and understanding ourselves in the world, right? And I think that so many queer Black people don't understand themselves as normal, right? They don't understand that these feelings of, of belonging and the thigh, you and Enzo's thighs touching each other in bed and that heat that you feel, that it that is a normality that we're so often robbed of. And so do you understand what I'm trying to say? That that you've exalted the queer Black experience in a way that I find that I'm really grateful for. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that part of the book to me speaks to, yeah, like that safety destruction element. I think love is kind of always towing this line between safety and destruction. I think how we learn about love teaches us a lot about that. And the reason I wanted to include that in there is because like in my relationship with my biological father, like it's either he is this person that gave people money and he was this community figure or he was abusive and he wasn't shit and he dealt drugs and he wasn't going to amount to anything. And so I, I, I think there is an intense part of being the child of immigrants, of Black parents, of parents from like the diaspora where they brought you into this world, but they can take you out. And how mm -hmm. does that dynamic, how does that relation kind of craft the intimacy that you share with each other? And, 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 and for me, like writing that part of the book is just so real because even last year I visited Jamaica for the first time in 10 years and I saw my stepfather there. And even if I'm thinking of the time that I got to spend with him, which was very tumultuous, very bittersweet. I also even felt that with him as someone who has been in my life, who raised me for a number of years and then has been estranged. And, and yeah, to, to, to me, it's about like that, that phrase or that sentence and like you speaking to like the sense of normality that I'm expressing um, to, to, yeah, it's, to me, it's about like honoring the inner child and what that inner child in me would have wanted and how in every single moment that I interact with my parents were, or other people in my life who don't understand my queerness or my politics. Um, there is always that level of, I want to destroy you, but I also want you to understand me in ways that I don't think you ever will. And I, and I think holding those two things at the same time, um, it's, it's more human to me and it's like a deeper vulnerability. And if there's ever a, a most honest place that I could be in with my fa biological father, if he were alive or my stepfather or my mother, um, it would be being able to express that, being able to say like, sometimes I fucking hate you for everything that you've put me through and most of the time I love you and I want you to be safe and I want us to share our world together. Um, and, and, and to me being honest about that is about honoring that inner child, which I think we all have and we're all kind of running away from or scrambling towards. And, and to me, that's where that sense of normality comes from, which is what I kind of tried to write to in this book, which is like, what does it mean to like live courageously, but to also simultaneously be terrified? <laughs> most of the time yeah thank you I feel really moved I've been thinking about my own inner child who I've named the dancing boy you know mm. that 
he um he sways and he moves in cert- at certain times and i've been trying to do more to make him light up what makes your inner child light up what who's your dancing boy mm. <laughs> oh that's a good question um <laughs> um uh reading young adult romance books makes my inner child light up um watching tv and media where white people are crying a lot makes my inner child light up Um, did you see the watcher no no i haven't oh my god if you want to see white people being terrorized (laughs) watch the watcher it's so good my it was ancestrally satisfying (laughs) Ooh, okay okay i've heard of that i haven't seen it but yeah what i'll definitely check that out um yeah, and I think like birthdays, seeing people being celebrated by people they love on their birthdays, like that lights up my inner child. Um, honestly, like any kind of super humbling kind of like thing or experience that I can do in public. And maybe, maybe this is just like a reach, but I'm thinking of like when I was in college, I would give out free hugs on Valentine's Day. And Although it's like totally cliche, kind of cringe, seems like mid 2000s internet culture in a way. When I think back to like what, like like that lit up my inner child, just like doing something seemingly random in a public space to offer like a kindness to other people um, is something that I really, really enjoy. Indulging in random, strange, like nonsensical hobbies um, lights up my inner child, like I don't know, I think of like all the different strange things I wanted to do as a kid that I kind of like just tried out for a few weeks and then just threw away and how as an adult now, I don't really engage in that kind of curiosity or or just like willingness to do something random for the sake of it. Um, yeah, and and yeah, I'd say it's, those are some of the immediate things that come to mind, but a lot of it is, yeah, consuming nonsensical media and yeah like if if i see a bad movie um like a bad movie is good to me when i want to share it with as many people as possible so like to me it's like loving something so much that i want to share it with the people that i love is also something i guess that lights up my inner child i didn't ask you at the beginning of our conversation how your heart is which i'd normally do at the beginning but i actually love the idea of asking you now as our conversation draws to a close how's your heart and how's your heart after this conversation Yeah, my heart feels full. I mean, it's, I definitely feel like I'm in a period of transformation and I'm in a period of like looking towards whatever next, this next version of myself can be. And I feel like a real commitment to that process. Um, And after this conversation, it's just affirmed even more because I think when I have really stimulating, enlivening conversations, it's kind of just like, it's kind of like when I smoke weed, it's like a quiet sea. (laughs) inside of me so um yeah that's how my heart is yeah to close i usually ask all of my guests the same question what do you hope for but i'm curious how you would like people to feel holding your book let's say they've just finished reading it how do you want them to feel i want them to feel like there there is another possibility out there for them if they don't think that there is one um because i wanted to write this book to honor the part of me where i didn't believe that things could get better or i maybe had an idea that they could and the notion or the even mere possibility that i'm living the life that i am right now is has just shattered like any of those doubts in a lot of ways and i hope that when someone reaches the end of my book they think if this person could experience these things and go to these places and be afraid and to still get through to the other side and to find some kind of meaning, maybe I can too. Um, and, And so I really just hope it gives whoever reads it like some kernel of hope, some sense that whatever nihilism they feel isn't for nothing, like it has a purpose, it has a place, it can push you towards beautiful things, things that can change you and stimulate you. And I, and I just really hope that like this book helps instill that belief in whoever reads it, that 
like things can change. It might not change in the ways that you imagine, but that's also what's so fucking beautiful about life. Um, and yeah. Prince, thank you so much for being here and for answering these questions and for being in community and conversation with me. Thank you. Thank you for the amazing questions. Prince Shakur's writing centers on marginalized, queer, and often silenced voices. Through film and creative nonfiction, he aims to explore the complexities of gender in Black and Caribbean communities, the strain of political resistance, and the power of conscious travel. When They Tell You To Be Good is published by and available from Tin House. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.